All right, everybody. Uh, hello and welcome to another exciting edition of my call-in program. Um, I promised a few days ago that I would try to bring in somebody who could provide slightly more direct insights into what's going on in Ukraine, especially as it relates to the American media depiction. Uh, because I think, almost invariably, it's preferable to get some sort of direct account of events like this, or rather than rely on second-hand portrayals that get transmitted through the propagandistic filter, especially of the U.S. media. Um, so, in that spirit, fortuitously enough, uh, Chris Arnotti who is a longtime uh, conversation partner of mine on Colin and other platforms, uh, recently returned from Ukraine and has been making observations about the contrast between how the situation is being portrayed in the U.S., which clearly, at least certain segments of the U.S., would like to provoke or exacerbate conflict and tensions there, uh, whereas on the ground, my understanding of his experience is that very few people, at least in the kind of ordinary rungs of society, seem particularly concerned or, or, or fixated or even at all kind of troubled by the prospect of a potential uh, Russian invasion. So in other words, we're getting back to the bizarre dynamic where the U.S. media and the U.S. government seem far more alarmist about the supposed prospect of an imminent... Remember, they said this was imminent. They said it was imminent, like, two weeks ago. Um, they're far more alarmist about the prospect of an allegedly imminent Russian invasion than the people in the country that would actually be invaded, uh, which is very strange on a whole number of levels and maybe, I think would constitute some grounds for skepticism about what Americans are being fed on this matter. Um, so anyway, Chris, uh, maybe just give your kind of initial uh, thoughts along those lines and what you saw and uh, how it kind of matches up with the way this is being presented in U.S. media. Yeah, so thanks. Um, this gives a little context. Um, I was in Ukraine for nothing, absolutely, absolutely nothing to do with what the news is about. I um I basically have a substack, and what I do is I just walk across cities. I, I spend, I usually go to a city and spend a week to two weeks literally walking 15 miles a day around the city. And so I had chose Kiev um, like three months ago, and partly because it was cheap to go to, which was partially due to um, what was going on and a bunch of variety of reasons. So I was in Kiev for two weeks um, to give you some other things. I don't speak Russian and I don't speak Ukrainian, but almost everybody I dealt with speaks English, but yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the, and you sometimes the, the, go to these kind of global cities and just walk around and exist for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my kind of goal is to, the way I operate as a traveler is to try to, to the degree I can become like, uh, uh, you know, uh, to try to cosplay as a um, local. Um, so I kind of, you know, I stay in cheap, you know, cheap apartments. I, uh, it not usually not in the center of town. I ride buses. I eat in loser places, and I hang out in bars. And I, 
you know, just basically try to blend in. Um, but the whole, you know, it was interesting because, you know, I had this trip scheduled for a while and then I got there. I got there, I guess, uh, Jan 10th. And it was just interesting, the whole, you know, everybody warning me, uh, you know, you shouldn't be going. You shouldn't be going. It's dangerous. There's going to be a war. Uh, and you know, everybody I, I meaning who like you people you know personally or like official sources people online the state department i got you know notifications of you know concern about your travel you, you know all, just all this wait stuff. the state so, department sends you an official notification yeah. somehow that they're concerned no, about it, your travel no what happens is if like the airline sent me something saying there's a sent me a status update about like the change in notice by the state department so it's not a big deal. I'm used to this. It's like I'm used to like kind of, what, you know, um, you know, and my family and other people. And I'm just kind of like I've I've learned to kind of the hype is never the reality is very different from the hype. But in this case, it was just really shockingly different. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't there to be a reporter. I wasn't there to be a journalist. That's not what I do. But uh, I mean, if it wasn't for well, Twitter, if you do in a way, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're going yeah, but, and... but, but but in this specific trip, I wasn't. I had no interest in and in, in kind of digging into sources. But if it wasn't for Twitter, which you know, I would check in at night. My my modus operandi is I there's a seven hour difference, and I just walk around town, um, and just hang out. And, and if it wasn't for Twitter, I would have no fucking idea there was anything going on. Um, it, it was just a normal city. You know, and and the the amount of out the amount of kind of like just the different concept of what was supposed to be happening where I was on Twitter versus what was you know in in, in the U.S. news versus what was happening on the ground was shocking. And and, and you know this isn't to say that there couldn't be an invasion because you know you can you can have that disconnect. But what was really kind of what became really kind of gross is the best way I could say it is. It's the degree to which you, there was almost a gleeful air uh, in, in the tone of some of these um, U.S. reports. The sense of like an egging on, uh, like a, like a, you know, like a, a hope that this would happen, and then you're in a place where the, you know the people will be impacted, their lives will be impacted should this happen, and yet they're just out. Like I mean, literally, I remember one night Saturday night in the mall, just hanging out. The mall was packed. I couldn't eat because it was just so packed with families and the skating rink was packed. And, you know, and I remember checking Twitter and just like people like, you know, basically the equivalent of a neocon saber rattling. And here here are these families just ice skating and high fiving and laughing. And it was just kind of like the, the, the difference was just shocking. And it was really kind of, like I said, kind of gross. I, and I remember like there was one time that was really funny. So I, you know, I started like, I started thinking like I was kind of, you know, my eyes were deceiving me that there, there had to be something going on. I just wasn't seeing it um, because I generally hang out in the, if you go to think about it in New York City terms, I really don't hang out in Manhattan. I kind of hang out in Bronx or Queens or Staten Island, um, the equivalent of Kiev, the equivalent of that. So I kind of moved, I went in. Or like Manhattan. far, or like upper <laughs> Manhattan, yeah, like north Harlem, of 120. So I decided like, you know, hey, look, I knew exactly where, where you know the elite neighborhood was. I knew their their equivalent of Georgetown or their equivalent of Midtown, and so I kind of went there thinking, hey, you know, I should probably check this out. Like, you know, 
see 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 what's going on there. And yeah, I have because you had never you said you had never been to Kiev before, right? So this no, was I sort of a fresh exploration. I mean, I, yeah, I can pretty much pretty much tell quickly where what a city is and what what the different neighborhoods are. I mean, my first day, I walked you know, 18 miles across the city, so I did pass through their equivalent of uh, you know kind of the, the wealthy neighborhood where where the where the kind of the embassies are and the, the equivalent of the Saks Fifth Avenue is and kind of the globalist hangout and um, an American kind of interests are. And, you know, so I, so I finally found like what was a protest, a big rally, like all the Ukrainian flags and there was horns and there was banners and there, you know, it was in front of a ministry of interior. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll go check this out. There seems to be a protest going on. This might have something to do with it. <laughs> Instead it was like, it was the equivalent of the, um, the maritime, the merchant marine union was protesting some minister who had changed some legal legal law about um, you know, fishing rights. So it was entirely <laughs> so, right. So there's supposedly an imminent invasion happening at any moment, and the the main street action that you come across has to do with just an arcane uh, uh, labor dispute. Yeah, like so they you know. I, so I started talking to them. Like I like I put my little journalist hat on. Like, oh look, look, there's some issues going on. Do you here. wear the fedora? Like, you wear the fedora with the uh, press tag on it. <laughs> I have like a little the, the Max boot hat on, <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, you know, like you know, and like, oh no. And I said, I said, like, you know, is this have anything to do with the U.S.? And they're like, no, no, no. This is like so and so minister. He changed the law. Be like, you know, I I, I think it was. I think this was actually this was uh, they were fighting the labor. I don't know which side the protesters were on, but it was like some arcane fishing rights EU law. <laughs> it's like so, <laughs> you know, changing on the 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 code of who could fish what out of the Black Sea. So, um, and that was it. That was the only time, you know. Uh, and, and the thing is, is like like I said, I don't speak Ukrainian, I don't speak Russian, but you know, it was I'm clearly an outsider because I kind of I stick out in a lot. Places I, I just you know I'm, I'm, everybody would try to talk to me because people love to sort of practice their English. So you know, and, and what I don't do is I don't lead the way I kind of I'm not there to kind of I, I find the whole journalist thing icky of like asking people questions. So I let them talk, and I let them kind of expose, and like you know, it never came up. No one ever basically you know. I think one person said, "Are you like, are I'm surprised you're here," and I'm like, "Oh, you mean because." Um, you know, because you know Americans are scared to come to Ukraine. Go, no, 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 no tourists ever come to this neighborhood. It had nothing even to do with the current situation. It was just like you know. yeah, so the, the guy wasn't, or the woman, whoever, wasn't surprised that you were coming, even though an invasion could be imminent, but that you were in a neighborhood that no one would ever think to come to. Yeah, exactly. It was. I was like in the. I was like in the equivalent of their kind of like. You know, Hunts point or something. <laughs> so, so, like, so in, but, in um, your just casual encounters with people, you never directly ask them about, you know, eventually the situation. I mean, or, I, I finally, finally, in and said, like, you know, what do you guys like? Because I, I, after like three hours of hanging out and drinking and doing karaoke with people, I'll eventually, you know, I finally just out of curiosity, go say, hey, you guys have any like, what do you think about the Russian situation? I'm like, ah, oh, you know. You know, I think the kind of version of the thing was like, yeah, it's always there, you know, eh, you know, it's always there. Politics, you know, I mean, normies have a great capacity in every culture to kind of it's like, oh, whatever, you know, like I got to get on my life, man. 
you know, but, but, you know, and so I started like doing a little more, you know, obviously I didn't go into this to kind of become a Ukraine specialist and I'm not a Ukraine specialist, but, you know, I have spent a lot of my life following politics. I have spent a lot of my life following Russia versus the United States. And so, you know, I, I understand some of the, and obviously the whole issue is a lot more nuanced than, you know, the, the, the kind of, kind of story out there is, is that there's a lot more kind of like, you know, U.S. has a, the U.S. has a has an active role in what's going on, and it's it ha, it's been having an active role in what's going on for a while. So it's not like you know this thing just all of a sudden popped out of the blue, and there's a clear bad guy and there's a clear good guy here. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of nuance here. And when you say active role, you mean active role, including in fostering the impression that invasion is imminent, because that is mostly emanating out of Western. Yeah, I mean, I, press I, I again, what I would say is what I would try to what I try to emphasize is what what I can say, having been there, is just, it's just really gross. I mean, that's the best word I can say. It just feels like, you know, Ukraine is, you know, and th this is a long there's a long standing story here between the U.S. and Russia. Certainly, you know, prior to the Cold War, I'd have a very prior to the fall of um, you know, of USSR, I'd ha I, I I could argue, you know, I could understand the dynamics here, you know, the, the them versus us, and and basically third world countries that are basically um, are like little tools that get you know, or little rag dolls that get chewed up by the you know, pulled by by the Russian dog and then pulled by the U.S. dog and get torn apart in the process. You know, they were basically little playthings for larger issues. Um, but now it's just kind of, it's just really just kind of like, there's really no reason to, to basically be, you know, ripping Ukraine apart. Um, for well, they're, they're, they use a similar, if you listen to how like American politicians discuss this, like I watched some of the Sunday news shows this week. And, you know, I don't recommend that because it can be pretty tedious, but I do it for quote-unquote journalistic purposes. And, you know, one thing that you'll notice is that a lot of politicians in both parties have a certain ideological commitment to Ukraine that I think to most Americans would be sort of inscrutable, and yet they're very fervent about it. Like, for example, Ohio Senator uh, Rob Portman is like the head of one of – head of the Senate Ukraine caucus or one of the co-chairs of it will use nomenclature like Ukraine is the last bastion of freedom in the world and we need to protect it or like the struggle for freedom in, in 2022 all comes down to Ukraine so they're kind of imbuing Ukraine with this seismic world well, historic uh, significance which doesn't seem to comport with a lot of what's really happening it's just a product of their weird kind of think tank infused ideological well, I mean, they, they can't they can't get out of the cold war mentality i mean that again the dial the, the kind of like when russia was a you know a um a totalitarian regime with an ideal with a with a clear ideology bent on exporting it and bringing it around the world and taking the u.s down that process you could you know <laughs> i think these discussions about what to do about El Salvador, what to do about Nicaragua, what to do about Cuba, what to do about, you know, Vietnam had a little bit more kind of like, there, there was a little bit more kind of, you could argue about like, 
you know, the, this kind of adversarial nature we've taken towards Russia um, post uh, 89, or at least post 99, is really kind of unnecessary. It's just, it's just weird. Like it's, it's, it doesn't, it, it's like these people have been unable to give up their, their old battle. Like, you know, the, Ukraine's not this you know, domino that's going to topple and then the rest is going to topple. Ukraine has some very, it, it, it itself has some very um, complex issues that make it, you know, that we're, we're being drawn into Ukrainian politics between different regions of Ukraine, different, different power groups in Ukraine. For, for just, you know, for very cynical reasons, and we're being played, we're being... <clears throat> yeah, well, being just played. to... Just, well, just, but the point is that we're being, we're, we're, we're being, and they're using their rhetoric of the Cold War to kind of pull us into internal politics that just doesn't, you know, doesn't add up anymore. And, you know, it, it's not, we're, we're, this is not pre-89, you know, this is, there, there's, this is about kind of, directions, you know, Ukraine, this is kind of more subtle changes in Ukraine than it is, like, is Ukraine going to become part of the totalitarian regime that is the Soviet Empire, or is it going to become part of the freedom-loving democracy wing, you know, it's no longer a kind of a stark contrast. Yeah. Shades of yeah, I think, that, you know, the domino theory, even during the Cold War, had a lot of nonsensical elements about it, but at least there was a putative like ideological valence, whereas now yeah. there just isn't. So it's even more nonsensical. And yet you see uh, American politicians, again, when they're talking about this, whether it's Republicans who are accusing of Biden of uh, appeasement or you know Democrats kind of drawing on a lot of the anti-Russia sentiment that had been fostered in the party over the preceding kind of five or six years now, they're coming up with their own kind of neo-domino theory about how this is one domino that, if it falls, will embolden China. And they say, you know, the first domino was the withdrawal in Afghanistan, which was a disaster in their depictions. You know, this is mostly what the Republicans are saying. And I think a lot of Republicans know that there's a fair, fairly large segment of Republican voters who are increasingly skeptical about whether it's prudent for the U.S. to have such an interventionist role in Ukraine. So they need to be told that it's not just about Ukraine. It's about this wider ideological project of kind of counter of counteracting China somehow, because if Russia is allowed to engage in unfettered aggression in Ukraine, that'll mean that China, you know, will invade Taiwan or Iran will pursue a nuclear weapon or something to that effect. I mean, Tom Cotton has just been... Uh, Echoing that line, which I, I tweeted about earlier, but but it's just kind of a mishmash of different kind of geopolitical imperatives that they have more so than anything that coheres into any kind of grander ideological project, seemingly, which distinguishes it from you know prior domino theories. Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like um, that there's an industry out there that needs to. It, it needs to have fuel, and that fuel is global conflict. And you know, I'm very cynical about journalists. I find a lot of what we do, and it's kind of why I didn't report when I was there, because I find it really gross—the kind of whole ambulance chasing, the kind of like. And there were those people there, like you know, I, I didn't overlap with them. They were in different neighborhoods, but I would see them on Twitter, American reporters who were flying to Kiev and making big tweets about, "Oh my, I'm here," you know. To, 
rushing off to, I knew exactly, I could have written a piece. I knew within three days how to write a piece that would have gotten like, you know, thousands of retweets on Twitter. I would have gone to the neighborhood where there was like American infused institutions. I would have found the equivalent of like young employees that their equivalent of the AEI or their equivalent of the Cato Institute. <laughs> People who have one foot in Western, one foot in Western you're well, not the Cato Institute, <laughs> like you know, Brookings, Brookings or something. Yeah, like you know, one one foot in kind of the kind of global Davos wing, and who 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 have been educated in Western in English and American style things, and you know, are are looking to make a name for themselves in Ukrainian internal politics, and want to have want, want to eventually end up you know being like a, in their foreign service or whatever. I could have found those people. I know exactly which cafes they would have hung out. I would have talked to them. I would have told, they would have told me about the pain of the, you know, the, the lack of blah, 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 blah. And those pieces were written. And it was like, I knew exactly what neighborhood they were going to come from, you know? And it's just like, it's really gross. Like, again, I keep on going back to the word gross because it's like they're ambulance chasing. And in the process, it's, it really is kind of war porn. Like, you know, that kind of, that concept of like people say what I do is substance is poverty porn. I, I, I hate those buzzes, but in some senses, it really is this kind of war porn in a sense because, like, you know, if you, if you report on poverty, you're not basically pushing more people into poverty. If you report, if you report on war in this way, in the way they're reporting on war, by raising the stakes, by kind of heating, turning up the heat, you really are increasing the, the chances that there's, there's going to be something, you know, because it really it does add to the tension. It really does. Yeah, add I mean, and the most ridiculous examples of these journalistic treks to, make it seem like they're doing something really uh, intrepid is when you see TV reporters being flown into, like, Kiev, and they're all they're doing is standing outside somewhere, probably, I guess, in the central city area, like, near a government building, and giving a video report, you know, as a correspondent, quote-unquote, to some, like, news broadcast. They're, they've been doing that in Ukraine. It's almost like they, what they do for a hurricane, Right. They're not providing any real informational value. They just want to demonstrate that they're there and that's somehow serious and important. Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, the U.S.'s role here seems to be to just be heightening tensions somewhat arbitrarily. And it, it's not just a matter of perception because uh, I, if, they're, I if they're heightening tensions, if the president, which Biden did say, is predicting that an invasion is going to happen – then that increases the likelihood that there could be some incident or some like accident yeah, I mean, or I, some I mean, it's really, it's altercation really, that could actually gen genuinely create a wider. It's really, it's really, it's really reckless. I mean, like, there, I mean, the, the role of there is there. Look, I foreign foreign policy is complicated, but you know, come on, man, like lower the heat here, man. <laughs> like you know, like if if you really do care about the Ukrainian people, blah blah blah, all that shit. That they, all the fucking fake empathy they pull out, then they should really be lowering the temperature, and you know, and kind of like reporting on the fact. I mean, like that's what the normies, that's what people in Ukraine want. They want the temperature lowered. I mean, they're, they themselves aren't like again. Like it's like I just wish you know. I think I tweeted at the time just some footage of the like from the mall. Like you know, when I, I, I it was one particularly outragey like moment when like you know they were ordering all. U.S. Embassy was ordering people to leave, you know, and, and so I got a lot of direct messages. So, Did you see this? Did you see this? You know, the State Department says 
they have to like they're gonna you know like and i'm like well i'm sitting here in a mall watching a lot of you know hanging out with you know i think i was doing karaoke that night actually like in a bar with a bunch of people it's just like okay <laughs> you know great um so i you know, the whole thing is just you know i've always said you know, well you know it, it's interesting because what you're relaying here is very similar to what the actual government officials in Ukraine have been saying, including the president. I mean, he, yeah, Zelensky, I mean, Zelensky has been ch- uh, chastising U.S. media and uh, the U.S. government for, uh, you know, causing alarm that was not warranted by the facts on the ground. And he actually gave an example. You mentioned the State Department ordering the uh, kind of extraction of embassy personnel. He gave an example that embassy uh, Greek diplomats, so diplomats from Greece who have some kind of outpost in Ukraine, actually have remained in uh, Mariupol, which is, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, M-A-R-I-U-P-O-L, Mariupol, uh, which is in eastern Ukraine, which would be in the uh, forefront of any potential conflict that could conceivably happen there they've stayed but u.s personnel in kiev somehow need to be withdrawn um so what does that do other than just generate tension that otherwise would not have existed there at all if people were mostly living normal lives i just kind of want to dwell on the absurdity of the situation right so just take a theoretical right if if americans genuinely believed or if the American government was claiming that an invasion of the United States was imminent, right? I think that would probably, to some degree, affect ordinary life in the U.S. Like, people would be aware of it, maybe making preparations for it, maybe be fearful of it or anxious about it. Um, And so, for that just not to really be happening at all in Ukraine, I mean, I I think there are some people who have seen, like, have emergency kind of getaway bags and stuff that they've prepared mostly in the east um but but you're I talking about they, a re- you're talking about a report from the west from the, from the wall street journal guy the guy who also yeah. told you was i told you that i can tell you that the bar he went to interview was like probably was the only bar i walked out on because it was too, it was basically filled with westerners <laughs> so like it was called pink floyd I well actually, i've seen reports that um from the, like Places in the east where there are like families who no, have no, I mean, yeah, I, I getaway bags and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but but the, the the point is there would be a somewhat there would be a fairly frantic situation in the U.S. if a similar pronouncement was made here about the imminence of a, an invasion, and yet it's just not happening at all in uh, Ukraine. So I think that disparity should really. <laughs> Make people skeptical, uh, skeptical about the kind of very foundations of what's being claimed is happening there. Brad Simpson is telling us I'm an idiot. Who's Brad Simpson? Are you on here, Brad? Brad Simpson's telling me I'm an idiot on Twitter. Mm. About to what? Some random guy who doesn't speak. I don't know some guy on Twitter. He's well, what, why are you an idiot? In relation to something you said here? No, it says Brad. So talking to some random guy who doesn't speak local language, doesn't know a single relevant official or policy expert. He's like, he's just never written a single thing about the region or the politics. Jesus fucking Christ. I'm telling Brad, fuck off, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so what? Because you don't speak the native language, you just can't go anywhere and you can't make observations about what's happening? I mean, that means you have to just stay in the... I mean, I, I think there are really severe limitations 
in not speaking the language and what I agree. you can pick up on. But, you know, you, yeah, you acknowledge that. You know? Say, come on, Brad, let's talk. See you, Brad. Is Brad, are you on here? Raise your hand, Brad. I'm not coming on. Okay, well, um, so, I mean, what is your, what's your overall conclusion to the extent that you have, Eddie? Like, if you were going to be writing something on this. Um, I'm, I'm writing a piece that, basically, the title of the piece is going to be called, am I writing about Kiev? I write about, I try not to write about politics when I write about my pieces on writing, I'm, I'm walking. Um, in the in the no man's land between Russia and the U.S. and the, the vibrant no man's land is the subtitle of my piece, which is basically the idea that's being pulled. It's being pulled, you know. It's kind of like Kiev is being basically in the in the larger in the larger larger you know, thirty year period. Kiev is Ukraine is basically being pulled pulled between the east and the west, kind of between the Russian orbit and the U.S. orbit. And this is just another example of that sort of process. Kind of the West and the East are Russia and the United States, kind of roughly speaking, kind of Western Europe and Eastern Europe are fighting over pulling Ukraine into their kind of like institutional framework, as well as also my piece is going to be more about and, and kind of thinking about how they, how the, how the culture of Ukraine and, and this is it going to become kind of a Western European style secular consumer based country, or is it going to maintain some of its uh, kind of more communist era sense of community, sense of place, but less materialistic, more kind of uh, about transcendent values? So that's kind of what I'm talking about. And that's kind of what's really going on here in the market. Kind of. Yeah, I just want to mention that a few days ago I got a message from somebody who spent said he spent nine months in uh, one of in near one of the uh, you know occupied areas or kind of semi-autonomous areas in the east, uh, Donetsk, and he said, "quote I almost he- never heard anyone mention the war while I was there." When me and my wife left eastern Ukraine for Norway in December, we laughed because we suddenly saw so much news coverage about the conflict everywhere, while in Ukraine nobody seemed to care. And that's in the east. That's not even in Kiev. Um, So, yeah, I mean, clearly there's some sort of disjunction in terms of the intensity that's being projected in the U.S. and what people are actually experiencing on the ground. And, you know, it, it... in a way, this is actually U.S. interventionism at work, right? I mean, it doesn't need to be a full-fledged you know, military engagement, although the U.S. is obviously sending arms and threatening to fund an insurgency and having you know, military personnel on the ground in, in Ukraine. But even just the, the kind of public perception that they're ginning up is enough of an intervention in its own right that it should really be cause for a lot of concern and skepticism uh, as to what the U.S. is even doing here. And, uh, you know, just today, Boris Johnson went to Ukraine in, like, a show of solidarity, and and he's having really severe uh, political problems in the U.K. at the moment, so who knows what his motive is for trying to maybe deflect uh, attention to a different matter that kind of puts him in the role of a statesman and a uh, you know a mediator or something. So the, there's a lot happening here that 
goes well beyond the, the facts on the ground. And as I, I mentioned in my call-in uh, a few days ago, I mean, look, it's just true that the U.S. Con- has conducted huge military exercises in Eastern Europe in just the past year, including live-fire drills in Estonia, which is on the border of Russia. And it's not even an afterthought in U.S. media coverage. It barely gets covered at all. And, uh, you know, clearly uh, that is something that Russians are going to be acutely aware of and are going to react to. And you just never get that context at all uh, as to how Russia may be operating or why they could be doing what they call exercises of their own um, in what is really ultimately their, their territory. And, um, you know, one of the tr- problems here is that when you give this interpretation of the U.S. role in maybe exacerbating tensions, uh, one thing that can be done is you could be accused of just peddling Russian propaganda because what you said matches almost perfectly with what the Russian U.N. representative said yesterday at the uh, Security Council session. He accused the U.S. of provoking conflict in ex- almost ex- identical terms to what you've relayed. Um, so if by happenstance, you know, your observations align with what the Russian government officials are saying, then that automatically can be used to discredit you in an American context because you're like a useful idiot or whatever. Well, you know, I, I, I am, a, my dad is from Germany, so, you know, he spoke Russian, so probably, uh, <laughs> probably a Russian agent. Yeah, and also one last thing, and then if people want to uh, call in, um, you know, you should call in now. Um, one last thing, that you, you uh, pointed out to me that there is a diplomatic solution that's on the table here that doesn't seem to get any attention at all and nobody seems to mention, which is this Minsk II agreement that was brokered in 2015 uh, by uh, a consortium of European countries, including Germany and France. And basically what, what it would call for is the establishment of two of these provinces in eastern Ukraine as uh, autonomous within Ukraine. And uh, uh, the Ukraine government agreed in theory to doing this uh, seven years ago, and uh, it hasn't been implemented. Um, And, you know, Russia is in favor of implementing this agreement, but it doesn't seem to have gotten done. And yet that's totally omitted at all uh, from the um, the narrative here, seemingly, uh, because you now I think a lot of people in the U.S. just have a lot of pent-up frustration with Russia and are seeking some sort of confrontation to kind of satiate their domestic political anxieties, which is an extremely gross way to handle potential life and death uh, conflict. Yeah, I mean, it, it really. Again, I, the, the best way I can I, I can say it, and I keep coming back to this word, is just being there, watching the U.S. news, <clears throat> and then comparing it to what was going on on the ground around me was just it's just gross. <laughs> I mean, that's the best. I mean, you can you can you know context matters, and it, it, like you know you you can see, like you just like people like the neocons and and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the people in the media and people in the, you know people coming to Ukraine to cover it they're just gleeful they're excited they get a new drama they get to cover a war again and it's just like like you can almost feel the 
the, the joy in their, in their, 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 their like you know, like look at me, I get to I get to see a conflict, yay! Like it's just it really again, it really is kind of disgusting. Um, the the they're really you know I, I I'm not a big conspiracy person and all that. But there really is kind of a military industrial complex that basically gets off on this show. Like they you know they masturbate to this. This is this turns them off. Really. Yeah, I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, there's no, a but, constant, there's a constant deluge of material coming out of the Atlantic Council, which is this kind of NATO-aligned think tank that has kind of wings in the U.S. and throughout Europe, and, and, and they're, you know, just time and time again, day after day, putting out the most maximalist kind of alarmism on uh, this subject, and that has a, they have a lot of tentacles throughout. The media that they place, you know, op-eds and TV guests everywhere, and there's no kind of comparable. And, and they have, you know, connections to the military-industrial complex to be sure. And there's just no comparable kind of think tank apparatus that can put forward an alternate view on the Russia situation, um, or even more specifically, well, I mean, the thing regards is, is, to Ukraine. Know, so that has a, it has a huge impact. I mean, given that we're in the media, I'd say is a the, the kind of meta analysis here is that the media gets off on this shit too. There's a, there's a part of the media that really enjoys this, like you know, um, that really kind of gets excited about covering. Well, yeah. I mean, would you rather cover a potential war, or would you rather cover like the minutia of what Joe Manchin is blurting out? On a given day, I mean, it's that that tends to be pretty boring. I mean, or at least I would think it would be more scintillating and gratifying to be covering a war, which is, you know, there's something just intrinsic to human nature about like seeking excitement, uh, and you know, journalists definitely are biased toward that. It would be great for great for ratings and clicks, you know, even though it would be bad for human. Um, all right, so we're going to go to a couple callers here. If people want to call in, go to my friend for Revolution. Don't actually know your name, um, but go ahead. It's Chris. Okay, sorry. Cool. You pacing around tonight, Michael? No, on? I'm seated now. Thank you. I tried to, I tried to calm <laughs> myself down. Nice. Hey, you know, this Ukraine thing, again, like I said the other day, kind of scares me and um, – you know, I think a war between the it scared me when Syria came up and there is kind of a proxy war between Russia and the U.S. You know, several years ago. One of the things that I've noticed recently, I'm pacing now, but um, is that the the distance or the different recollections that uh, Gorbachev and Baker have. Um, RE promises back when the Soviet Union was dissolving and disbanding and becoming independent republics and a uh, promise that Baker says was made and Gorbachev says was not made uh, insofar as not moving east of, of Germany um, with with NATO back then or, or any alliances. I'm not even sure if NATO was... Um, came to be yeah it was nato 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 was after world war ii so yeah okay um or in other words the promise the promise that was given that's disputed um 
in the early uh, 90s in relation to the reunification of Germany was that, you know, the Soviet Union would accept the reunification of Germany in exchange for a commitment by the U.S. and other Western powers to not have NATO expand uh, eastward. And this is disputed because there are questions as to how tangible that commitment that was offered by Baker really was. Um, But, you know, actually in 2017, I believe, Documents, contemporaneous documents from the U.S. government were released showing that there were tangible commitments made. I mean, people who recorded notes about what Baker said to Gorbachev um, confirmed that he did actually give an assurance of no eastward expansion of NATO. And uh, that was even reiterated by like, Margaret Thatcher. So the, the, a commitment was made. The, the only really thing that's in dispute is how binding it was, which it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't written. So the one... One thing that Putin is doing now is he's saying, you know, we're submitting in writing our demands to the U.S., and then they have to respond in writing, and that the U.S. did that, you know, last week, uh, and rejected essentially what Putin was demanding, which is a firm, tangible, concrete commitment of no uh, further eastward expansion of NATO now into Ukraine. So, yeah... I, can't, I guess that's kind of how I read it, and I just don't understand why Gorbachev is saying, kind of countering it. It doesn't make sense to me why he would go in that way when, you know, what, what's the interest of, of Baker to lie about it, or what's the interest of either to lie about it or to misremember or have a different uh, yeah, My, my reading it. is that Gorbachev, Gorbachev, he gave an interview uh, a couple years ago where he, he kind of vaguely denied that that topic was raised um, maybe it's just his memories muddled I mean he was he's pretty old um, but it could just be that he's trying to almost uh, justify why he didn't get executed a more tangible commitment right because that would maybe reflect poorly on him and his diplomatic prowess um, so you know there could be a number of explanations but either way it's it's, it's kind of it's overridden by the fact that we have contemporaneous documentation showing that there was a, a verbal offer given. So, um, is it is it okay to delve into a subject other than Ukraine? I have a question about something else, but if you want to keep to Ukraine tonight, I can ask you another time. Um, yeah, you can, uh, whatever you want to do is fine. Okay, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll probably pivot back to Ukraine uh, after the question. But yeah, go ahead. That's perfectly fine. I'm interested in the Ukraine. I'm just not, you know, as red on it and don't have as much to say about it because I don't know it as well. Um, The thing I did want to ask you was what your reaction was to uh, Joe Rogan's video um, that he released on Instagram on Sunday evening. You know, to me, and I can't fully tell if it's something that Spotify asked him to do or if it's something that he's proactively doing on his own. But, you know, to to my eyes, and I'm not the biggest Rogan fan. I agree with him on things, and I don't agree with him on other things. It's a weird situation now. It's, uh, you know, to me, reminiscent of last year when when Trump was uh, banned from social media. And, and I'm putting, I'm not a Trump person. I'm not somebody who would ever vote for him or support him. I'll support him on issues where he's right, which is very few. Um, there was more when he campaigned in 2016, but 
the way he governed. I agreed with almost nothing he did. Um, not nothing, but almost nothing. But, you know, I don't support him being censored or kicked off social media. Social media in 2021, 2022 now is the public square. It is, I, I don't support censoring people. You know, I, I, I have to be frank that when Alex Jones was censored several years ago, I was a little more supportive. And in hindsight, I, I think because of the slippery slope aspect of when censorship starts, um, I, I think that was the wrong move. Um, or, or I was wrong on that. Um, but, it, you know, it sucks to be put in a position where you have to defend people that you don't agree with. But I will do that when people are being censored because I just am fundamentally opposed to censorship. Um, but, I, you know, going back to the message that, that Joe released on, on Sunday evening, I mean, how could you ask anything more of somebody, you know, frankly, in for me, if somebody was going after and trying to cancel me, I would not be as gracious as, as Joe was in, uh, in his statement. And it's really kind of a testament, I think, to why his podcast works so well and why he's so popular. Is like, you couldn't ask anything more of somebody to be like, hey, you know, I get things wrong. I admit that I, I try to not, but it happens. And I have guests on who... You know, he points out the two that that are the really, really the big uh, sticking points for for other people in their pushback against Joe Rogan, um, being McCulloch and uh, and Robert Malone. And I guess my question is, what do you think of that, and and why do you think this push for censorship against Joe Rogan is happening? Is it simply because of his popularity and how many views he gets, and what? What's your reaction to that video? I mean, I just, I don't think you could ask any more personally of somebody who's put in that position to react the way Joe Rogan did. And I know I wouldn't react that way. I basically tell everybody, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and everybody else that they can go F themselves. And, you know, that's why I'm not a celebrity and, and not in that position that Joe's in. But what's, I guess, what's your reaction to all of that? Well, yeah, and I think... I watched that video and um, you know, I hadn't seen it until relatively late because I was uh, in the car yesterday. And I was listening to like the one local news commercial news stations in uh, New York, Ten Ten Winds, and they did a little segment on how uh, you know, Joe Rogan was under fire, and they said that they played a clip of him from that Instagram live video where he says that his intention is never to propagate misinformation, but in the news segment, the kind of, uh, narrator claimed that Joe Rogan in fact was guilty of propagating misinformation, including that vaccines contained microchips. And I just said to myself, you know, is that true? I mean, has Joe Rogan asserted anywhere that the COVID vaccines contain microchips? I don't think so. And so I looked into it, and apparently in, like, April or May of last year, Rogan did say something about how there was experimentation through some U.S.-funded program that uh, would entail uh, some sort of device being implanted in the body that could detect the presence of infectious diseases. So it's just like, okay, that, that's not really – that's not Joe Rogan saying that the COVID vaccines have microchips. So they, they, they just distort – 
everything. And but the point is, I guess my reaction is, is that the what the definition of misinformation is so vague and nebulous and so in, unevenly applied that I just have no time for it as a justification for any censorship at all. Uh, that said, you know, I think my reading of Rogan is that he's sort of casual about this sort of thing. Like, he doesn't genuine, generally stake out really hard and fast principles. He's more just about having conversations that he finds interesting, right? So what you could watch a podcast with him where he has somebody with one view and Rogan seems to agree with the person expressing that view. And then he can have another podcast with somebody who has a contrary view and Rogan seems to be endorsing that view. It's just, it's, it's sort of a, a very, it's like a casual approach to these dialogues. So I don't think he really takes it personally, the idea that maybe he should have a bit more strenuous fact checking and maybe it's okay to have a disclaimer. Um, yeah, I think he just doesn't really care that much in an odd way because he sort of views the, the phenomenon of podcasts as sort of like in a way separate from him. I think he even said in the Instagram Live that he it's become such a behemoth that he almost doesn't control it anymore. Um, so, I mean, that's my reading on it. I mean, he, he clearly is in a situation with Spotify where they were – uh, you know, their stock price had gone down as a result of the Neil Young thing and – Nevertheless, they stood by Rogan, so maybe there's like a there's a, a, a sense in which he wants to express his kind of thanks for, for Spotify not doing the standard kind of corporate thing where they you know denounce him or something because he's like you know, maybe it wouldn't be a standard corporate thing because he's obviously the most lucrative asset that they have in terms of podcasts. So. Um, I don't. I don't think he. I, I'm not. And I guess the bottom line is, I'm not surprised that he wasn't like hugely aggressive and antagonistic toward those who were wanting to censor him because he just doesn't. He has a certain detachment from it and doesn't take it personally, and it's like willing to make maybe kind of modest accommodations to kind of reduce the likelihood that he could be doing something that's potentially harmful. I don't know. Um, yeah, but, but it doesn't really matter ultimately because Spotify is not going to get rid of him. You would, and if anything, they need to be accommodating of him um, because he could easily just leave Spotify and create his own thing. It would probably be even more successful. Because I don't know about you, but I tend to listen to less Rogan now than I would have pre-Spotify. Because it's, when it was on YouTube, yeah, because it's just like a, yeah, because it's just like an extra step you have to take to listen. Yeah, I'm it's just, not a Spotify so, member. So. Marginally less accessible. Totally. Um, so the, he's the, he's the, he's the one with the leverage in the situation. The thing that's interesting to me about on that specific point is that you know he's less censored on on Spotify than he would be on on YouTube. YouTube has a definitely stronger <clears throat> uh, leaning towards censorship at this point, especially re COVID and COVID protocols. And so it'd be interesting if he was forced out of Spotify to see where he would end up, if it would be Rockfin or, or Rumble or, or whatever, because those, the conversation with McCullough and with Malone are not allowed on YouTube. 
period, end of story. And that's a completely different subject that I've asked you a little bit about before, and uh, I do enjoy hearing your opinions on. But um, I'll I'll sign off now. Nobody's behind me. Yep. I guess I could ask maybe another question since nobody's Well, I, I was just going to say I, that my uh, – <laughs> My, well, let's actually let's just, let's go back to Ukraine since that was the point. I mean, okay. My, what my, I was going to um, say is, on my way out, is I appreciate you having on your guest Chris uh, Arnade. Uh, I appreciate people who have experience in these things and not some people who are just pontificating on things based off what they read and, and saw from afar. And so that's why I tuned in this evening, and I appreciate your guest and his uh, expertise on the subject because it's immensely uh, valuable. So I will sign off on that note and let you uh, pivot back to Ukraine. And I appreciate Thanks. your time, Michael. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I was going to say my, my somewhat spurious attempt to connect uh, the the Joe Rogan controversy to Ukraine is what I just tweeted as you were talking, which is that was his quote, to take the heat off, perhaps what Joe Rogan should do is passionately endorse the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Um <laughs> <laughs> so that's 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 that, that's my pivot. Um, Excellent. Thanks for your yeah. time, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Evening, so, um, all right. So, if, if uh, unless anybody else wants to chime in, Chris, do you have any concluding thoughts? I mean, how do you think? Did you get, have any sense of how things are going to pan out, or like, do you have any predictions or kind of concluding observations? Um, I mean, I think I think um, you know, I think. One of the things that uh, if you basically, if you make the position online um, along the lines of saying that, you know, effectively, the U.S. has no real you know, stake in this and we should just, you know, leave, get the fuck out of Ukraine. Um, you know, people will immediately call you to it to World War II and call you like, you know, <laughs> like Neville Chamberlain. Um, and Hitler, yeah, they only, you know, they only know one historical analogy, yeah. And so, you know, I wish people would go back to War One, you know, the, the better, you know, the obviously the, the more worrisome one to me is War One, where people, you know, all these countries get into absurd alliances and then some small issue. Well, yeah, Balkans. I mean, what well, people being the, the, for, particularly the conservatives who claim to be such China hawks at this time. I mean, they do realize, right, that China is essentially an ally of Russia in this situation. And China voted against the U.S. initiative to bring this to the Security Council yesterday in, in solidarity with Russia. So, I mean, do you, what, do you think that you're going to really damage China by kind of vindicating what they're saying in terms of the nefarious, alleged nefariousness of U.S. intentions, like they, the, there's not a whole lot of clear thinking here. But you know, it's it's not outside the realm of possibility that if some conflict were to break out, that the U.S. is actively engaged in, that China could come in and you know it could spiral. So I, you're well, I, I mean, think I you're think right that World spiral. War One, World War One is a far more apt analogy than World War Two. Yeah, I mean the the you know look, I, I think. I think the chances that U.S. and Russia get into a, you know, shooting match over this are basically close to like half a percent of that, you know, half of one percent. So nothing. I mean, I think both sides don't want that. I think both sides are. You know, well, the people want people, but people didn't want 
I mean, I, I'm not a World no, War I, I, I expert, I but people didn't want that either. They stumble into it, well, and they're kind I mean, of with their backs against the wall, you know, they, and that, you know, that's how it works. I think that, I think World War One is also about an alien in some ways because I think people did want it. But in any case, the point is, is like you can get into these complex geopolitical gamemanship that just send you in, into places that you don't know it's going to go. It's kind of a nonlinear process. So it's it's never good. <laughs> it's never good to kind of get into a shooting match between two, two, two people that fucking who have that much trouble backing down. I mean, I've said my kind of view on this whole thing is there's a lot of history here. Um, that the heat needs to be needs to be lowered between the United States and Russia. Um, and I personally, I know why it doesn't happen. The U, somebody needs to basically, you know, it's like two guys about to fight in a bar. Someone has to like lose a little face. And I think of the U.S. You know, it's better off for the U.S. to you know, take take the step down, admit some mistakes, or you know, back down a little bit. And like, you know, so what? Like, okay, you you know, to to, to heal the relationship, the U.S. actually has to basically, you know, <laughs> kind of back down once in a while. Um, but I think, you know. The problem is, is if if Biden does that, the Republicans go ballistic. And if, you know, whoever's if, if Trump had done that, then the, the Democrats go ballistic. So there's a, there's never really a good, you know, neither party will let the other party do what's necessary, which is to lower the heat and kind of like you know, make the first move to type backing down. And there's there's absolutely no reason that we're in this kind of um, absurd kind of. I, I personally think China is the bigger issue. If you're going to be a if you're going to be a kind of foreign policy guy who needs to have something to fight, needs to have like an ideological enemy, then I think China is the bigger threat than Russia. I, I don't understand why since why since the 90s we've gotten into this really adversarial relationship with Russia, and to the point where like yes, I mean Putin does some really bad shit. I'm not saying he doesn't, but I think we've helped make it easier for him to do that. And we just need to lower the temperature. And that means, you know, taking a few L's now and then, um, and, uh, and kind of, and, 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 you know, and giving Putin a W now and then to kind of move the, to, to win it, to win in the longer term. So I think globally, there's just, there's no, I mean, it's just not the threat that it was in 1985. It just isn't. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm kind of wary of that. I don't know that you're making an argument per se, but one point you'll often hear aired in relation to this from you know conservatives or you know, libertarians or whoever people people on the right who are skeptical and you know maybe take, are more aligned with the Tucker Carlson view of the situation is oh you know this is all distraction from China. We should be focusing on China. It's just like okay, so what do you mean by that? So like you just prefer a different Cold War scenario? I mean, I don't really agree, even though China is clearly more of a pure nation and is poised to surpass the U.S. and global influence, I don't think that that should necessarily be assumed as a basis for some Cold War conflict. Like, does that mean that they're, they'd be fine? If this was, if the we were in like a brinkmanship situation now with Taiwan, they'd be all in favor of it? I mean, so they'd be all in favor of it with a different nuclear armed power that was more powerful and uh, that could actually defeat the U.S.? Uh, potentially in some sort of scenario uh, that could be yet to emerge. I mean, I, I don't really endorse that line of thinking. Uh, and, you know, you could be opposed to unnecessary conflict with both 
powers in my mind because it's just not going to end well for any. No, I, mean, I I'm generally a I'm generally a a foreign policy uh, dove. I generally am non. I'm, I'm, my my overall view is very much. Um, I guess the negative way of phrasing is isolationist. But I think the positive is I'm I really don't like U.S. to be meddlesome in other other countries. I don't like wars. Wars are bad. <laughs> like you know, and we should do everything to prevent them. And uh, we're we're not out there. You know. You know, I, I kind of like I, I'm not sure what the goal of U.S. foreign policy is. It, it make the world safe for for basically McDonald's to go wherever it wants to go. Or is it based on some sort of weird kind of idea that we're we're out to save the world and, and, and install liberal values around the world? I mean, if if it's the latter that we're all for human rights and all that, what the fuck are we doing in Saudi Arabia? You know, I mean, like. And so I'm not really sure what the goal here is of U.S. support policy in, in the bigger picture. Um, well, I mean, that... if, you, if you listen to like Steve, uh, Steve Bannon, for example, who is kind of the beating heart of a lot of uh, – at near the beating heart of a lot of right-wing sentiment, his ultimate goal is to actually bring down <laughs> the uh, Chinese Communist Party. He wants to dislodge or overthrow the Chinese Communist Party eventually. I don't know. He hasn't endorsed like an invasion of China necessarily. But that's what he wants to happen, and he wants the um, levers of power in the U.S. government to be all aimed toward facilitating that. So that's kind of a crazy notion. Um, whereas, you know, I think for liberals, it's still this kind of internationalist, you know, quote unquote, rules based order system that they feel Russia jeopardizes in some way. And uh, really, it's just a matter of the U.S. A lot of this is all uh, really window dressing around the U.S. seeking to preserve its hegemony. Um, and, you know, on the right and the left yeah, but, and, but people, again, and, and in between, people have different rationales for that, uh, meaning why they, 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 they give different rationales for why they want involvement in different areas in the world. Yeah, but again, the I mean, what's but the ultimate? ultimately, it's all about preserving that, that hegemony. Yeah, but for what for what purpose? Why, like, why? Because they they view it as valuable unto itself for the U.S. to be the dominant world power. Yeah, in my my view, and as somebody who worked in Wall Street for twenty years, I can tell you that they want to make the world safe for 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 for, for selling products. <laughs> the number one rule of foreign policy is to be able to sell as many products as many countries to sell sell U.S. products and then as many consumer products to as many plate consumers in the world. I think that they want to make a safe world safe for McDonald's. <laughs> so like you know, and so Well that's perfect for you. That means you'd have more McDonald's to go to and talk to <laughs> I actually went into no McDonald's in Ukraine. I, I, I chose not to. <laughs> they have, there were um, McDonald's there though. Oh there are lots of McDonald's but they have um I, I became a big what they do in Ukraine is absolutely wonderful. Uh, my only Ukrainian travel tip out there is uh, the bars, the bars serve uh, fish, pickled fish, and, hmm. and salted and dried fish. And so, like, you, they're in bars, and they actually, even in the poor neighborhoods, they have these takeout places where you can go in and get like a a, a takeout jar of, of various beers, like one 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 twenty five for a liter. And then you get you got like this massive display of all these various salted and pickled fish. It's a really wonderful combination. So I ended up hanging out in the bars, the bar, the fish and bar, the, the, the beer and fish places. <laughs> so, yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, hopefully, if people are planning a trip to Kiev, they'll take up take you up on that travel tip. Um, and if you are listening and you you, you want to go to Ukraine, uh, let me know, and we'll have a, another call in session where you can you can recount your travels. Um, all right, everybody, uh, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll do another one of these sometime soon. So have a good night, everybody.